0: You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org and it is indeed time for evidence based radio. So uh as always you can find me as the uh promo suggests on Facebook. Um you can also Find past um, shows at com, and actually, again, I just want to keep reiterating this because it was really good and I really want uh, people to go out and buy his book because it's a fantastic book. The um, interview I did with Sam Redman a couple weeks ago is up on the website. You can listen to it um, and definitely go out and get his book. Bone rooms. You can get it at Amherst Books. Uh, you can get it ordered for you at Barnes and Noble. Lots of different places. Um, they actually also carry it at Wisteriahurst. Uh, another programmer who uh, works at Wisteriahurst let me know that. So if you're going down there for some reason, they sell it in their bookshop. Okay. So I hope that you're all sufficiently recovered uh, from our earlier snowstorm uh, this week and that you haven't yet uh, gotten too deep into your celebrating of um, St. Patrick's Day. Um, And so, yeah, let's let's talk about science for a little while now. I did want to talk a little bit about the snow. It is unfortunate that so late in the season, we are having such an amazing amount of snow. Um, I'm not quite sure if my tulips are going to recover. I did try and cover them uh, and uncovered them yesterday and sort of looked at them being flat and sad. Uh, I think they might actually rebound, which is pretty cool. Uh, It is amazing how some of these early spring uh, plants can actually survive what for other plants would just be a devastating frost. Um, It's very cool. And uh, at some point we'll probably talk about uh, how certain plants and animals are able to actually create sort of antifreeze properties in their uh, systems in order to kind of combat that issue. Because of course what happens is that the water in the cells crystallizes. It becomes basically ice. It becomes ice and ice is not generally smooth on the sort of microscopic level it's very jagged and so it basically rips apart the cells as the cells freeze and so that's why when there's frost your plants die because they've basically been internally ripped apart when the water inside the cells turn to ice um, it's very sad, <laughs> but there are definitely plants and animals out there who have devised different ways of getting around that so that their cells don't freeze and they don't end up getting destroyed. And also I think that one of the other things I wanted to talk about is just in case you don't know, uh, and I was just thinking about it, so I thought I'd, I'd look it up just to be sure that I knew what I was talking about, that um why it is that when you pile up snow into a big pile, it takes forever to melt. Um, and so obviously there is still some really tenacious snow hanging on from before. And then, of course, this one came out and now we've got... Big, huge piles on the ends of uh, parking lots for uh, all of the stores. I was at the mall earlier today and giant piles of snow. Now, it's probably not going to be quite as bad as what happened in 2015 when the East Coast was battered with, I think, something around 15 storms. And so what ended up happening there is... In Boston, for instance, they were forced to create, by the waterfront, huge piles of snow. And, of course, what happens is that the snow gets denser, and there's a lot of it that's not even being heated by the sun because it's interior to the pile. And so, you know, it's not like it's laying on your lawn where there's lots of surface area. It's all exposed to the sun. And so what happened was that there was actually, I found a article from weather.com that was talking about how the very last remnants of that snow pile were still there in July of 2015. Um, And that's, you know, pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, definitely we haven't had that kind of a winter, so we can all be a little bit... Happier that we didn't have that kind of a winter. Because in fact, at the beginning of the season or at the end of the snow, there were piles that were up to 75 feet high uh, in that sort of waterfront area. Um, and so, yeah, that was pretty impressive and it did take until July. And of course, one of the other things you've you've most likely noticed is that what happens too is that a lot of times the snow gets covered with not so nice things, dirt, oil, uh various pieces of garbage things like that and so that doesn't help either because then it's sort of encrusted with this other stuff so that's again not getting sunlight and the thing about it is that it's actually easier if it rains to convert snow to liquid by having it rain than it is to expend the energy from the sun to actually melt the the um Snow, and so, in two thousand and fifteen, part of the problem was is that while it was a hot summer, it was a dry summer, and so again that 's part of why it took so long for the snow to melt so hopefully we 're going to have a wet spring and summer this year, even though i don 't particularly like rain when it 's falling. Um, I do appreciate the need for it, so hopefully this year we 're going to have some better weather um, and we won 't have a repeat of last year 's drought. And we also will get rid of this snow much, much before July. Okay, so let us move on now to talk about, well, I wanted to start off with this story, even though it's, you know, Probably not anyone's favorite story. There are people out there who I know do like this animal. Um, Some people even have large ones as pets. Uh, But I do want to make a little warning here that I'm going to be talking about spiders. So if you want to skip a few minutes, (laughs) uh, I won't blame you at all. Um, But I thought this was a really interesting article. Or a new study. So the new study was published in the journal The Science of Nature. And it finds that spiders consume between four hundred and forty and eight hundred and eighty u s million million u s tons of insects a year, and in fact that 's more than the uh, four hundred and forty million tons at most uh, of meat and fish consumed by humans. And actually, uh, they suspect it's closer to the amount of food consumed by all whale species in a year. So, how did they figure this out? Well, they did a little bit of creative uh, accounting here. So, it's, you know, clearly there's a big range there. Uh, 440 to 880 is a big range. But, It's all done basically on estimations, but they're educated estimations. So definitely, uh, it's definitely, they make a good case that they're taking a lot of insects out of the environment. And a lot of those insects are insects that can cause disease, can be pests and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of making that argument, once again, that even though they're creepy and they're crawly and, and we don't generally like them, that spiders are actually usually, I mean, obviously we have exceptions, but usually they're pretty uh, good neighbors to have. And so biologist Martin and uh, of the University of Basel in Switzerland, and ecologist Klaus Birkenhofer, or Birkhofer, of the Brandenburg University of Technology in Germany, started out by estimating the total biomass of spiders in the world. They essentially looked at papers that estimated the biomass uh, or total weight of animals from different ecosystems around the world. They also noted, for instance, that in test fields where spiders were removed, insect populations actually exploded. So that, again, um... They were supporting the idea that spiders are good for our ability to um, deal with insect populations and of course, part of the thing about spiders is that they are incredibly successful arthropods they've conquered pretty much every ecosystem ecosystem in the world, including the Arctic tundra and so they've scientists have actually identified more than forty five Thousand species of spiders in the world, with many more undoubtedly still out there, lurking in the dark corners, caves, and underbrush of the world. Um, and so, the actually the only other terrestrial arthropod that can arthropod that can compare to the abundance of spiders is ants. However, most ants are omnivorous. And a large portion of their diets are generally plant mass rather than um, insect mass. And so once they had estimated estimates for the biomass per ecosystem, they then multiplied this figure by the total area of land that each ecosystem encompasses on the earth. So for instance, there's more sort of forest and grasslands than there is desert um, and things like that. And so what they did was they did all the math. And so at that point, they arrived at a figure, which is an estimate of around 25 metric tons or 27 million U.S. tons. Um, Our tons are slightly different um, because, of course, we use the imperial system and not the metric system like everybody else. Anyways, (laughs) Um, so they then estimated how much food would be consumed by the total biomass of spiders. And so they actually approached that in two different ways. First, they estimated the total food requirements for a single spider, which they estimated to be around 0.1 milligrams of food per milligram of spider weight. So basically about 10% of the total mass of the individual spider would need to be consumed every day to keep that spider alive. Now for spiders in the desert environment, they actually consume less food due to the unique conditions of living in the desert. Uh, you move a lot less, you spend a lot more time hiding when you're an animal in the desert. And so they estimated that those spiders would consume only 0.01 to 0.04 milligrams of food per milligram of spider. And so this produced an estimate of anywhere between 507 million and 772 million U.S. tons of food. And since almost all spiders are carnivorous, uh, the few species that aren't are, I think, all omnivorous, I tried looking and I don't think there are any species of spiders that do not consume meat. Um, I may be wrong if I am. If you know of any spiders that are completely uh, herbivorous, please let me know because I would love to know that. That would be a great fact to know. But basically, almost all of that is insects and other prey animals. And what they did then, once they had that set of numbers, the second way that they looked at it was they returned to the literature and looked at studies where scientists had actually tracked the total number of insects that spiders ate. So you know they do field studies where they or they 'll do laboratory studies where they 'll have spiders, and some poor uh graduate student or even undergrad has the uh honor <laughs> quote unquote of sitting there and watching the spider and seeing how much it eats um, hopefully via video so that they can fast forward <laughs> but anyways um and so using those estimates. This gave them a new estimate of between 435 and 887 million U.S. tons. And since insects, uh, as well as springtails, which are actually primitive wingless insects that are very prevalent in underbrush um, and leaf litter around the world, make up around 90% of the diet of all spiders, that's a lot of insects being taken care of by our friends, the spiders. Um, and so, yes, there are some spiders who eat other things. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen, if you don't mind being uh, grossed out or terrified, you've probably seen some big spiders eating other things. Um, and uh, But for the most part... The majority of spiders out there are eating insects. And so what they have found is that in addition, forest and grassland spiders are actually the most abundant, obviously, because it's a lot harsher to be a spider in a desert or in the tundra. Even though they're out there, it's a lot harder for them. um, So they don't proliferate as much. Um, And so they found that they're responsible for about 95% of prey killed each year. And of course, this is the habitat that is most likely to be shared with humans and to contain bugs that can upset uh, human crops or human health and things like that. Now, of course, because I keep saying estimated, you know that this isn't a perfect uh study where we know that this is almost certainly fact and one of the big problems uh one of the largest limitations to the study is that we don't really know some things that are kind of important (laughs) like we don't know the actual ratio for instance of adult to juvenile uh spiders. And so that definitely throws off the numbers because of course, an adult spider is going to be eating more than a uh, baby spider and things like that. And so there are definitely uh, limitations, but basically the takeaway is that spiders are eating a lot of insects and so that is definitely the takeaway. Now, of course, there are downsides to spiders. Some are actually venomous to humans, and a few even are able, with their bite, to produce a fatal bite. Um, some spiders can kill us, um, and some can do other terrible things that I'm going to spare you uh, talking about tonight because I've already talked about spiders. I'm not going to talk about uh, other things that can be associated with human spider bites. You can Google that if you're really interested. Um, (laughs) I would say have safe search on um, unless you're really, really curious and okay with uh, seeing things that are not nice to see. Uh, But anyways, overall, uh, they are definitely doing yeoman's work, uh, taking insects, and again, often pest insects, out of our way. And so the researchers noted that these estimates emphasize the important role that spider predation plays in semi-natural and natural habitats, as many economically important pests and disease vectors breed in those forest and grassland biomes. We hope that these estimates and their significant magnitude raise public awareness and increase the level of appreciation for the important global role of spiders in terrestrial food webs. So next time you see a spider in your house, perhaps think twice about killing it. Or not, as there are clearly plenty more in the world. (laughs) Um, Generally in my house, I have a rule... we kind of have a no insects, no spider rule, um, if at all possible. But um, my personal rule is kind of, as long as the spider's not in my bedroom, as long as it's not directly above my head, I'm okay. Um, (laughs) If it's in a corner somewhere, I'm okay with that. Um, But it just, once they are in my bedroom, that's, that's a whole nother thing. And yes, I am completely aware of the fact that you know the old wives tale that you swallow a bunch of spiders in your life that's completely untrue uh spiders are not interested in your mouth um they would probably be very upset if they ended up in your mouth so you're probably not swallowing them while you sleep but i still just feel like i don't want to wake up with a spider crawling on me that's a bridge too far as far as i'm concerned um but yeah And also spider webs are really pretty. Um, Spiders are amazing. We could talk about spiders all night, but I think that some people would be very uh, turned off by that. So let's move on. (laughs) Okay. So now I want to switch and uh, I want to take a minute to give a sort of unusual uh, sort of shout out. Um, And this is making... um, a little I just wanted to bring to the attention the uh good side of something that's been uh sort of in the news and on YouTube lately because I think that a lot of people are probably a little freaked out about it, but um I wanted to sort of bring forth the good part of this um, so what I'm talking about is a uh, weapons physicist. Uh, Greg Spriggs and his colleagues at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have been doing great work scanning, reanalyzing, and declassifying films taken of various nuclear tests, uh, nuclear weapons tests between 1945 and 1962. And again, while this may seem like an odd thing to celebrate, the motives of the scientists is clearly altruistic. So Spriggs notes that we hope that we would never have to use a nuclear weapon ever again. I think that if we capture the history of this and show what the forces of these weapons are and how much devastation they can wreak, then maybe people will be reluctant to use them. And so they are preserving films that are rapidly deteriorating and will soon be unusable if not scanned. So for instance, when they open up the canisters, they sell it, say it smells like vinegar, which is of course part of the deterioration process. And so around 6,500 of the estimated 10,000 films have been scanned so far. And what this is allowed for is new computer-aided measurements which have actually shown that the original estimates for some tests, which had to be calculated by hand by a team of scientists looking at each frame and doing measurements by hand, that they found that some of those were, unsurprisingly, off by uh, a certain percentage. We were finding that some of these answers were off by 20, maybe 30%, Spriggs said. We've also discovered new things about these detonations that have never been seen before. New correlations are now being used by the nuclear forensics community, for example. And so they estimate the project will take about another two years. Um, And if you're curious, if you want to look at some of these, they've actually started putting uh, them up on YouTube uh, for your viewing pleasure, so I will put a link to that on the Facebook page. You can go to their YouTube page and watch some of these uh detonations I haven't done it yet, but I probably will watch some of them um because of course, these were all tests uh people weren't actually hurt by any of these, um and most of them were tests that were done after you know almost all of them were done after we had already used them the one time um in war and i clearly as someone who is interested in both science and history have a lot of opinions about whether or not we should have used them in war um but that's neither here nor there and i think that it's very important um to do this sort of work so that like the scientists are saying that we sort of look at and remember exactly what happened and don't do that again um, because that's really, really important. Okay, so now we're going to talk about medical science, because um, there was a lot of things coming out of the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently, apparently, because I just kept finding new things that sounded really interesting to talk about. Um, so let's start with a couple of stories concerning the eyes. Now, one actually has a sort of happy ending, even though it's sort of the weirder of the two. Um, But let's start out with the not so happy story. Um, And actually, hold that thought, because we should actually take a break. Uh, So I'm going to take a break first, and then we will come back and talk about these interesting cases uh, concerning eyes and other medical related Uh, stories. So hang on for just a few moments and we'll be back. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide visit save.org In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1 800 273 TALK. Creative Valley is a show where I, DJ Spence, get the opportunity to talk to the fascinating creatives of the Pioneer Valley. From authors to performers, artists to game designers, bands and musicians, you'll find them all on Creative Valley. Sundays at noon on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM Northampton or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and Newgrass music. Hey kids, it's Archimedes and Damn It Dave from Poppy Geekery. And what are we listening to, Dave? Where are we? <laughs> Sorry, long pause there. I didn't know you, you got to point to me. You have to like slap point me or something. Point to you. I said we're gonna do this. Is that okay? And you're like, yeah, that's fine. I did that, and then you didn't do anything. <laughs> hey kids. What time is it? Sorry. <laughs> hey kids, it's Archie and Dave from Potty Geekery. Where are we at, Dave? We're in Northampton. Listening. <laughs> <laughs> it was so easy. It was so easy. It was so easy. It was so, it's written on paper for him. It's written oh on paper. We? Right. Oh my god. Fire away. I'm ready. Go. Go. You sure? Go, Arch. All right. You can do it. I can do it. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pottery Geekery. What are we doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Very good. (laughs) Hey, kids. Let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metaphysis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for their mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have be the perfect parent. Don't tell dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids in the Ad Council. And we are back. Okay, so we are going to be talking about the eye. So, the first one is a paper published in this week's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, It's actually just a case study, but it talks about three female patients ranging in age from 72 to 88 who suffered blindness and other eye issues due to complications from an unproven treatment involving stem cells that was supposed to be treating their macular degeneration. And so what happened was they actually um, were treated at a clinic in Florida. And apparently the clinic had listed the treatment as a clinical trial. Um, I'm doing air quotes, uh, which you clearly can't see, um, at the government clearinghouse, clinicaltrials.gov. Now, however, when they signed off on the procedure, there was actually no mention of a trial and each was required to pay $5,000. Now, if you know anything about clinical trials, and actually, especially if you don't know anything about clinical trials, this should have been a giant red flag. I'm not aware of any legitimate research, at least in ophthalmology, that is patient-funded, Thomas Albini, MD, an associate professor of clinical ophthalmology at the University of Miami and a co-author of the paper said, there's a lot of hope for stem cells, and these types of clinics appeal to patients desperate for care who hope that stem cells are going to be the answer. But in this case, these women participated in a clinical enterprise that was off the charts dangerous. And so another red flag was actually the fact that women the women received treatment in both eyes during the same session. And so that is a big issue because, you know, things like this happen where you have both of your eyes worked on and you end up getting you end up going blind because it doesn't work and you have now had this happen in both eyes so most respectable doctors would have tried it on one eye first just you know as a precaution <laughs> um so yeah definitely not a uh, on-the-level clinical trial here. And so, what actually um, happened here was that the problem is, is that even though things can be listed on clinicaltrials.gov, that's not necessarily uh, vetted. (laughs) Um, And so... Albini and his co author, Jeffrey Goldberg, MD, PhD, uh, professor and chair of ophthalmology at the Stanford University School of Medicine, noted that shoddy stem cell preparation or some other issues during the treatment may have been the cause of the complications. And so the stem cells were actually isolated from a abdominal fat, and they were combined with platelet-dense plasma from the individuals before being implanted into the patient's eyes. The authors suggest that the stem cells may actually have become myofibroblasts, which is a type of cell associated with scarring. And so, for instance, in this same in the same uh, issue of um, the journal, there was a different trial talking about actually implanting um, some cells back into an eye in order to help with someone's uh, macular degeneration. But what they had done was that they had actually taken cells and already made them into the kinds of cells that are in the eye before replacing them in the eye. So they didn't just inject stem cells and hope for the best, which is what seems to have happened here. Um, And so there's a huge difference between those two things. And so the authors actually note that even if the treatment had been performed flawlessly, there is no evidence to suggest that such a treatment would actually be helpful for their condition. They note that there is little literature to support the idea that stem cells derived from abdominal fat could be coaxed to become retinal pigment epithelium or photoreceptor cells, which are the cells in the eye associated most closely with macular degeneration. And in fact, that other study, they were able to coax the cells to become retinal pigment epithelium and actually created a sheet of them to then go into the eye in place of the damaged ones. And that was what they did, but they had already changed them to those epithelium cells before implanting them into the person's eyes. And of course, um, just as a note, the um, that trial, the eyes actually didn't get any better. They didn't get any worse, which was good, but they didn't get better. So this wasn't a cure either. This just... Uh, apparently arrested, at least for the time period that they were viewing um, these people, arrested further degeneration, which is good. But again, this is not some sort of uh, silver bullet that is going to cure macular degeneration. And again, this was an actual uh, study, it seems, that was well-designed and uh, had actual people who knew what they were doing, um, unlike this, um, situation here. And so, um, Dr. Goldberg notes that there is a lot of very well-founded, well-founded evidence for the positive potential of STEM therapy for many human diseases, but that's, but there's no excuse for not designing a trial properly and basing it on preclinical research, and again, this is a good reminder that listings on clinicaltrials.gov are not necessarily fully vetted, uh, and so you might think, "Oh, well, they've been event- they've been vetted by FDA. That's why they're on there." Well, no, um, that is. It is a requirement to put your clinical trials on there. But that is a requirement by the FDA that is, that's simply it, is that if you're going to be doing a clinical trial, it has to be listed there so that the government can sort of know generally what's going on, but they're not tracking and making sure that all of these trials are actually on the up and up. And so what happened is that it turns out, that the procedures that were conducted weren't even considered something that would be required to be vetted by the FDA because the cells belonged to the individual and were not being quote-unquote substantially altered. Now, after this happened, the FDA clarified its requirements to bring these under its auspices uh, and to make sure that if people were doing this sort of thing, they did have to have FDA oversight. But, of course, in our new era of deregulation, uh, such dangerous so-called trials could become even more widespread. We expect healthcare providers to take every precaution to ensure patient safety, but this definitely shows that the lack of oversight can lead to bad players and bad outcomes. It's alarming, Albini said a little bit of an understatement. (laughs) And so they do actually have a concrete suggestion for those who are interested in seeing if a stem cell trial is legitimate, because it can actually be really hard because a lot of people are sort of pitching stem cells as, you know, the new thing. Um, And so you can have these kinds of clinics that are shady and not really on the up and up. So they suggest that patients can consult the website, um, a closer look at stem cells, uh, which is maintained by the International Society for Stem Cell Research, and so they can also check whether the trial is affiliated with an academic medical center, which definitely increases the chances of it being legitimate and having a good protocol. Now, of course, none of this guarantees success. Um, it definitely helps limit the possibility of a trial being poorly designed or otherwise executed. Um, and so, what one can always think of is the old saw that if it sounds too good to be true, chances are it is. Um, and so, unfortunately, there are a lot of scam artists out there in uh, healthcare because, of course, this is a place where people are desperate. And desperate people make unfortunate decisions. Um, And so as our healthcare system continues to be plagued with high costs, uh, low availability, and again, people's desperation, clinics like this one will continue to prey upon people who, you know, are just trying to be well. And it also shows, again, um, that alt medicine, uh, isn't necessarily peddled solely by those without legitimate medical degrees. So unfortunately the buyer really does have to beware and, um, it's really important to check out if you're doing anything that sounds, uh, you know, new and possibly, um, possibly, uh, dangerous that you really, really well vet the people that are doing it and the, um, places that are going to be um, conducting the experimentation because, you know, you were dealing with really important things. Um, the uh, authors say that it's not completely impossible that they'll regain sight, but they said it's extremely unlikely. So yeah, but let's talk about a less depressing eye-related uh, story. So this is also published in the latest issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. And so it's a clinical report of a 37-year-old woman in China who presented with what is called a protruding iris colorette. And so this is a raised ring around the center of the eye, which is actually in the middle and thickest part of the iris, um, which is, of course, the colored region of the eye. And so that sort of middle part is called the iris collarette. So a protruding iris collarette means that it's raised up off of the surface of the rest of the eye. Now, the picture is actually rather shocking when you first look at it. And I actually initially thought it would be some sort of terrible story about a parasite. So I was quite uh, pleasantly surprised when it turns out that while rather odd looking... There's not any actual treatment for protruding iris choleret because there seems to be no actual detrimental effects associated with this raised eye anomaly. And in fact, it's a rather common condition, apparently. Um, though rarely presenting in such a dramatic form, they note, because I'm like, hmm, I don't think I've ever seen that, but looks it seems to be that, you know, a lot of people have kind of a, a very minimal one that you can't necessarily see, but in this patient, it's very, very visible, um, and of course, she had actually gone to the to the doctor because she had itchy, watery eyes, and that turned out to be associated not with her odd eye architecture, but rather the fact that she had simple allergies. Um, and so, Doctor um, Ling Yi Liang, um, an ophthalmologist at the Zhangshan Ophthalmolic Center in China. And senior author on the brief report on the woman's condition told Live Science that the patient was otherwise in good eye health, with 20/20 vision, normal pressure, and a normal response to light and distance. And I will definitely post the link to um, that so that you can look at the really remarkable uh, picture of her eye because it's really interesting um, to look at and to sort of think about uh, how that has. Um, come to be and yet doesn't actually affect her eye at all that's the cool thing it's like it doesn't affect her um and so again eyes everything is totally amazing that you know she can have this crazy uh ring around her eye and it's like meh, doesn't do anything so that's very happy see much happier than the first story okay so let us continue to talk about some happy medical stories. So the next story is about um, a breakthrough, another breakthrough in the uh, search for a cure for HIV. And so scientists are reporting that, a, that they've discovered a unique protein that will allow doctors to detect, detect the presence of inactive HIV in the immune system. And so this could, again, I always am very clear to emphasize that this could lead to a real breakthrough in not merely treating the disease, but in actually curing it. And so these days, many people basically can have HIV and see it more as a chronic disease rather than a death sentence. And so, you know... It can be treated, um, but it is not curable yet. And that is the goal is to make it curable. And of course, the drugs actually keep the virus in check, but they're unable to find the hidden reservoirs of the virus lurking in the patient's own immune system. And so what happens is that if the drugs are stopped, the disease can reassert its control on the patient with, unfortunately, sometimes remarkable speed. And of course, part of the other problem is the cocktail of antiretroviral drugs required to treat the disease is quite expensive, and in a lot of times, compliance is an issue, which leads to new drug resistant strains of the disease. So, the success of HIV is that it can lay dormant in the body's resting T cells and actually integrates its genetic material into that of the patient, making the cells hard to track as they basically present as normal cells. Um, and so there is new hope because researchers in France have identified a protein called CD32A, which is found only on these dormant T cells infected with the virus. And so um, this was actually published in this week's issue of Nature, um, and lead author Monsef Barakane, um I'm sure I've mangled that, but sorry, um, a virologist at the University of Montpelier, uh, writes that since 1996, the dream has been to kill these nasty cells in hiding, but we had no way to do it because we had no way to recognize them. And so, of course, part of the problem, too, is that because they can't find them very easily, they don't know all that much about them. Um, and so what they've been able to do is now that they've found CD32A, they've actually been able to develop an antibody that sticks to it, which is super exciting because that means that it can now be identified in blood samples from patients with the disease. And he specifically says you absolutely could not have done that before now. And so they're hoping that this will help um, with another breakthrough because um, this actually isn't an unprecedented hope because in the late 1990s, tests that helped to measure the viral load in patients were actually instrumental in the developing of new drug therapies. So hopefully this new protein-antibody combination will able to be replicated in a variety of people across demographics, um, which is, of course, the next step, and that it will prove a really viable target for future research. Um. But of course, you know, the problem is, is that HIV is really tricksy. So fingers crossed. Um, Okay, so one more story, um, also from French researchers in the realm of medicine. Um, And this is from the March 2nd issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. And it describes a case wherein a young man has been, for all intents and purposes, cured of sickle cell anemia. Now, he was just 13 when the treatment was performed at Necker Children's Hospital in Paris, and it involved removing the patient's bone marrow, genetically altering it to produce healthy red blood cells, and then reinserting it into the patient. And so 15 months later, he is free from medication and complications. Philippe Le professor of medicine at the University of Paris and one of the main authors of the new paper, told the BBC News website that... So far, the patient has no sign of the disease, no pain, no hospitalization. He no longer requires a transfusion, so we are quite pleased with that. But of course, we need to perform the same therapy in many patients to feel confident that it is robust enough to propose as a mainstream therapy. Now, of course... As with any good scientist, he's kind of reluctant to say the cure um, word, but it is definitely um, a important breakthrough. Unfortunately, of course, the majority of people who have sickle cell anemia are in Africa, and currently something like this using uh, gene therapy can only be done in a uh, cutting edge hospital in either Europe or, um, you know, a comparable place, so... While this is amazing for this young man, it's definitely something that will have to continue to be developed if it's going to have a real impact on people who have um, sickle cell anemia in places where it's endemic. But of course, again, for this young man, it's amazing. Um, Before his treatment, he had already had to have his spleen removed and his hips replaced. Um, And he had needed to go to the hospital every month in order to have blood transfusions, which helped dilute his blood to get those sickle-celled red blood cells uh, out of his system. And so that is very cool. And I definitely think that um, it is something that if it can be developed more and be turned into something that can be used in, say, Africa it would be amazing because sickle cell anemia is a real issue. And of course, it's one of those um, evolutionary issues where um, it's been, they think that it was um, developed because it actually, if you have one copy of the gene, you have resistance to malaria. Um, but what happens is that if you then have two versions of the uh of the gene, then you get sickle cell anemia, which is very painful and very awful and just a debilitating, terrible disease. (sighs) Okay. But that could be very cool. Now, speaking of evolution and uh, evolutionary biology, I wanted to definitely get to talk about this cool little story um, before we wrapped up for the night. So there are these little fishes called blennies. Uh, The And uh, the ones that are being that this story pertains to are blenny fish living in the South Pacific Ocean, Um, and they are evolving the ability to live on land, basically, Um, and in fact, literally, (laughs) um, in order to escape their sea-bound predators. So Terry Ord of the University of New South Wales and his colleagues have been observing the habitat, the habits of several species of blennies, at Rarotonga, the largest of the Cook Islands. And so they published their results recently in the journal, The American Naturalist. And so at low tide, blennies are commonly found swimming in rock pools around the edges of the island. But during high tide, they actually climb up onto dry land and shuffle around until the rock and shuffle around on the rocks until the tide retreats. So the researchers suggest this is because they are avoiding predators such as flounders and lionfish. And so basically what they did was that they made little plasticine models of blennies and they put them in tide pools at high tide. And when they pulled them out, they had puncture wounds, bite marks, and junks missing. So yeah, they're pretty certain that that's part of the reason why they're moving on to land. Now, life on the land is not without its possible dangers. The fish are occasionally picked off by hungry shorebirds, but predation on land is about a third of that encountered in the ocean. So life on the rocks also has other benefits, including sheltered holes that allow them to safely lay eggs, as well as the fact that they basically have a continued buffet of the algae and bacteria the fish subsist on, so they don't have to worry about food. And in fact, several species in the area have actually already made the transition to basically being land-dwelling species. They still use their gills to breathe, um, but they have developed stronger tail fins to allow them to hop between rocks. So Ord suggests that some evolutionary processes, such as a species moving from land to sea, may take place due to pressure from predators rather than uh, what is usually considered to be the idea, which is that they are seeking greener pastures for food. If you never look over the fence, you'll never know that the grass is greener, he says. However, if you're forced to the other side to escape something then you may realize it has additional benefits and want to stay there and adapt. Now, of course, more research and observation will be needed to see if this truly holds up as an evolutionary pressure um, that can be applied to other species. But the nice thing is is that there's no rule that says that all creatures have to have had the same sorts of pressures to evolve. So it may be that this... uh, particular fish just this is its pressure. Okay, um, we're unfortunately out of time, but I do want to call to your attention one more thing that I will link on the Facebook, which is to an infographic uh, that sort of ranks uh, um, popular news sites for how good they are at reporting on science. So I think it's really important and a good map and it was made by very serious people um uh someone at the American Council on Science and Health and also someone at Real Clear Science both very good websites and um you might be surprised at the placement of some of the uh publications such as the New York Times which tends to be uh really terrible on uh Monsanto and uh they just did a terrible article recently on um acupuncture so yeah science reporting is not their strong suit but anyways that is it for tonight and I will be back next week with new stories have a good night stay tuned for civil politics